Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, August 7th. In today's news, NRA executives are accused of draining $64 million from the nonprofit in just three years. A former Saudi intelligence officer accuses the crown prince of ordering his assassination. And the Trump administration is now rejecting visa applications unless every single field is filled in. But first, the big idea. White House officials and Democratic leaders ended a three-hour negotiation late Thursday night without a coronavirus relief deal or even a clear path forward, with both sides remaining far apart on critical issues. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said the two sides are still trillions apart after emerging from the meeting with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. President Trump called into the meeting several times, but they were unable to resolve key issues. Mnuchin said afterwards that if they decide today that further negotiations are futile, Trump will move ahead unilaterally with executive orders to address things like unemployment aid. Schumer countered that Democrats are very disappointed in how the meeting went and that any White House executive order will be challenged in court. Pelosi said Meadows pounded his hand on the table at one point, reminding her of the meeting where Trump did the same in October 2019, the last time she and the president met in person. Meadows denied doing any such thing. This political standoff comes as more than 30 million of our fellow Americans are set to miss their second enhanced jobless benefits check in the next few days, and millions more are no longer protected by an eviction moratorium that expired last month. This is the ninth time that this group of four negotiators has met in person over the past 11 days. A group of endangered Senate Republicans, whose names are on the ballot this November, have begun freaking out about the lack of a deal, worried that it will cost them their jobs and their party control of the chamber. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Kentucky Republican who himself is up for re-election, says his conference is badly divided. About 20 GOP senators say they are reluctant to spend any more money at all because they think the $3 trillion Congress appropriated this spring was enough. McConnell has avoided the talks for this reason because his party is divided. He left the Capitol long before Thursday night's meeting broke up. And here is a fitting metaphor for Washington's utter brokenness. The Senate Rules Committee has drafted a preliminary plan for a rapid testing system for that side of the Capitol. But on the other end of the building, the House Administration Committee has deemed that approach impractical for the complex. Masks are mandatory on the House floor, but only recommended on the Senate floor. Congressional leaders can't even agree on what type of thermometer to use to monitor lawmakers and staff for coronavirus symptoms. Yesterday, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Democrat from Maryland, bucked Pelosi stepping out to formally endorse a widespread testing of everyone working on the campus that she has said is impractical. Meanwhile, in the heartland, the contagion continues to worsen. Mississippi is now experiencing the country's highest rate of positive tests. This virus is no longer principally an urban problem. It's present in every state, and those infected often don't know it, leading to what public health officials call inherent community spread. The situation in the Magnolia State is unfolding, as well in other largely rural parts of our country, including Alabama and California's Central Valley, places where so much viral material is circulating that when people get infected, they're unsure when or how it happened. 
that makes contact tracing and containment impossible. And, making matters worse, there are ongoing efforts to censor and cover up the ground truth about just how bad it really is. At least two Georgia teenagers who shared photos of their maskless classmates in their school's crowded hallways have been suspended for five days from school. The Paulding County Schools Superintendent in Georgia told parents in an email forwarded to us that the images, quote, don't look good. But then he proceeded to argue that wearing a mask is a personal choice for students. At least 156,000 of our fellow Americans are dead today from COVID-19, and about 5 million have been infected. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, the chief executive of the National Rifle Association and several of his top lieutenants engaged in a decades-long pattern of fraud to raid the coffers of the powerful gun rights group for personal gain. That is according to a new lawsuit filed Thursday by the New York Attorney General Letitia James, who calls for the dissolution of the NRA and the removal of CEO Wayne LaPierre from the leadership post he's held for 39 years. She requested that a court bar the four men at the top of the organization, LaPierre, General Counsel John Frazier, former Treasurer Woody Phillips, and former Chief of Staff Josh Powell, from ever serving in a leadership position of any charity that operates in New York forever. NRA officials lashed back in response, accusing the Democrat in a countersuit of a premeditated plan to take down their organization because they're planning to spend tens of millions of dollars to try re-electing Trump this fall. In one new revelation in the lawsuit, the attorney general says her investigators uncovered receipts to show that LaPierre recently arranged a post-employment contract for himself with the NRA worth $17 million, but never sought board approval for the deal. The lawsuit also claims LaPierre failed to report large sums of personal income to the IRS. Her office said it found that the NRA funneled personal expenses through an outside public relations firm, allowing LaPierre to avoid reporting hundreds of thousands of dollars of personal income. She said she has sent a criminal referral to the IRS. The filing also claims that LaPierre billed the NRA more than $500,000 for private charter flights that he and his family took to take a vacation in the Bahamas eight times over three years. LaPierre was reimbursed in four years by the NRA for $1.2 million in expenses for personal trips, golf fees, and gifts, according to the suit. LaPierre also spent $3.6 million of NRA money for private travel consultants, to arrange private jets and executive car services for him and his family to use in a just two-year period. To get NRA business, the suit says that one vendor gave LaPierre and his wife an all-expense-paid trip to Africa for a safari adventure. Another vendor frequently lent LaPierre the use of his 107-foot yacht when he went on vacation to the Caribbean. Phillips, the former treasurer, is accused in the suit of arranging an NRA deal worth more than $1 million that benefited his girlfriend. The lawsuit also claims that shortly before he retired in 2018, Phillips obtained a contract for himself worth $1.8 million. The contract called for him to provide advice and consulting services for the new treasurer, but the new treasurer told investigators that he knew nothing of the contract and never received any services from Phillips. Powell who was LaPierre's longtime former chief of staff, saw his salary increase from $250,000 to $800,000 in a three-year period as allegedly a reward for his loyalty to LaPierre. 
he then allegedly pocketed an additional 100000 bucks that he was not entitled to, according to the investigation, as a housing allowance. In addition, the complaint alleges that Powell arranged for his wife and father to earn money through NRA contracts. Number two, a former top Saudi intelligence officer and a close U.S. intelligence ally has accused Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of targeting him for assassination and taking his children hostage because he has knowledge of damaging secrets about the prince's rise to power. In a federal lawsuit filed yesterday in Washington, Saad al-Jabri alleges that there is virtually no one that bin Salman wants dead more than him because of his close relationship with the American government as a longtime trusted partner of senior U.S. intelligence officials. In a detailed complaint running more than 100 pages, mixed for truly gripping reading if you have time this weekend, al-Jabri alleges that the Saudi leader orchestrated a conspiracy to kill him in Canada. It closely parallels the same conspiracy that resulted in the death and dismemberment of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey. Al-Jabri asserts that the prince and his allies pressured him to return to Saudi Arabia with Mohammed deploying agents into the United States to locate him and then having malware implanted on his phone. When Al-Jabri was ultimately located, hiding out in Toronto, he says Mohammed sent a hit squad to try to kill him. The team was only stopped by alert Canadian customs officials who, in a grisly echo of the Khashoggi case, were he, according to him, found caring forensic tools that could have been used to dismember his corpse. MBS is now widely referred to in Washington as Mr. Bonesaw, a reflection of his pariah status outside of the White House, which has refused to hold him accountable for his conduct. And the new lawsuit contains a revelatory allegation about why al-Jabri was fired back in September 2015 after more than a decade as one of the CIA's most valued contacts on counterterrorism. Al-Jabri met that July with John Brennan, who was then CIA director, to warn him that MBS was encouraging Russian intervention in Syria. Two months later, Russia sent troops in. And according to the lawsuit, Al-Jabri was sacked in reprisal for talking to the Americans. That doesn't sound like the conduct of an ally. In other Middle Eastern news, Trump yesterday named Elliot Abrams convicted of perjury for his lies about the central role he played in the Iran-Contra imbroglio as his new special representative for Iran policy. Abrams, who's been serving as Trump's special representative for Venezuela, will continue in that position in addition to the new Iran role. Abrams pleaded guilty to lying to Congress under oath in 1991 as part of the Iran-Contra affair, He was later pardoned at the last minute before he left office by George H. W. Bush. Abrams, who was Assistant Secretary of State in the 80s, admitted that he unlawfully withheld information from Congress in 1986 while testifying about the secret Contra supply network and his role in soliciting a $10 million contribution for anti-Sandinista rebels in Nicaragua. Abrams also served in the George W. Bush administration, where he was a leading cheerleader for the Iraq War. He replaces Brian Hook, who has been a central architect of Trump's hardline stance against Tehran. Number three. Last fall, 
the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Bureau introduced what's being called perhaps Trump's most arbitrary and absurd modification yet of the immigration system. They started rejecting all applications unless every single field was filled in, even those that obviously didn't pertain to the applicants. For example, columnist Catherine Rampell reports today, if the middle name field was left blank because the applicant doesn't have a middle name, the application gets rejected. No apartment number because you live in a house? Rejected. No address given for your parents because they're dead? No siblings named because you're an only child? No work history dates because you're an eight-year-old kid? These were all real cases, and these were all applications that were rejected on those grounds. This no-blanks policy is just the latest bureaucratic change made without consent from Congress, nor the legally required formal rulemaking process. After an initial flood of confusing rejection letters, immigration attorneys wised up. But then the Trump appointees adapted. Now they require unsuspecting third parties to clear the same hurdle. USCIS said the no-blanks policy will extend to at least one document that must be filled out by law enforcement officials, someone over whom immigrants and their attorneys have no control. Catherine argues that this Kafka-esque processing change isn't merely vindictive. It's a huge waste of resources for the people filling out the forms and those processing them. And as Trump ramps up his election year nativism to new heights, the previous Republican president is celebrating the contribution of immigrants. George W. Bush has painted portraits of 43 immigrants who have helped make America great. He's been working on the project for 18 months, and he's publishing them in a book next year that will be entitled Out of Many, One. In an Instagram post, Bush wrote that he hopes his book will, quote, help focus our collective attention on the positive effects that immigrants have on our country. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, August 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.